Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from ecology to economy, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our show is about college and graduate students who are dedicating their academic pursuits to learning about the Maine coast and conducting research that helps decision makers plan for the future of coastal communities and the Gulf of Maine. Before we jump in, I wanted to mention that this show is the second in a three-part series on youth and young adults doing good work and good play on the Maine coast. In July, we talked with kids and adults from summer marine ecology programs, and in September, we'll talk with the next generation of leaders in Maine's fishing industry. Today, we'll hear from college and graduate students doing marine-related research in Maine. Over the course of the show today, we will be talking with students from the University of Maine, Bowdoin College, College of the Atlantic, and the University of New Brunswick in Canada. We will venture from mudflats to offshore islands, from scallops to seabirds, and from fishing to water quality issues. I wanted to note that the conversations you will hear in this show have all been pre-recorded at a variety of coastal and island research sites, and so we will not be taking calls today. We start on Hurricane Island at the mouth of Penobscot Bay. I am on beautiful Hurricane Island in the middle of Penobscot Bay. Many of our listeners will know Hurricane Island as the former base for Hurricane Island Outward Bound. Since 2009, however, the Hurricane Island Center for Science and Leadership has been running research and education programs out here, and I'm about to learn about one research project that works with fishermen to assess the impact of closing small sections of the ocean bottom to scallop fishing. In light of state management of the scallop fishery that now includes rotating closed areas, researchers are asking what happens to the bottom after it has been off-limits to scalloping for a while. In this spot, project leader Caitlin Cleaver describes the research and how it has been informed by her companion work as a PhD candidate at the University of Maine, looking at the sociological dimensions of aquaculture. As fishermen face closures like the ones faced by scallopers, increasing numbers of them are looking to aquaculture as a method to diversify their income. According to Kate, there are certainly many barriers to getting into aquaculture, but there are also some opportunities. After we hear from Kate, we'll hear from her research assistant here on Hurricane Island, Bailey Moritz, a 2016 graduate of Bowdoin College, who shows how immersing in meaningful research on the coast can be incredibly rewarding at the undergraduate level, too. We're here on Hurricane Island in Penobscot Bay. Yep. And I am talking with Caitlin Cleaver. And do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. What you do and your title and all that good stuff? Yeah. So I'm Caitlin Cleaver. I'm the Director of Science and Research here at the Hurricane Island Center for Science and Leadership. I'm also a second year PhD student working with Dr. Teresa Johnson at the University of Maine as part of the Sustainable Ecological Aquaculture Network, or CNET, project. Great. So we've just spent the last couple hours um, 
counting spat in spat bags. Tell us a little bit about that project. Yes, so that is part of the Midcoast Maine Collaborative Scallop Project, which is in its fourth year. Um, and I and we started it um, in June of 2013 when I was working at the Island Institute as a marine programs associate, and it was really driven by a fisherman who approached the institute and wanted to test the effect of closed areas on scallop populations and didn't know how to go about doing that. And so luck would have it that I became the project coordinator and brought together the state Department of Marine Resource manager um, and a couple other fishermen and then some scientists who had different levels of expertise with scallops. And we met and defined a closed area on Lower Muscle Ridge and then figured out what methods we needed to use to test what the effect of the closed area would be over time. Um, and so we do dive and drop camera surveys. We collect individuals to take a tissue sample um, for genetic analysis. We also keep the shells to do growth rate analysis and then um, we also put out spat bags as a way of tracking larval supply to the closed area. And we work with a number of partners. Island Institute is still involved now that I've taken the project with me to Hurricane Island, um, as well as the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth and Hudson University. Uh, Bowdoin is now involved, um, as well as the University of Maine, Rick Wally. Arlington Marine Center, and I feel like Penobscot East Resource Center, who's been heavily involved in scallop fishery management discussions. Um, so yeah, it's a wide range of partners, and then a, a number of fishermen from South Thomas and Friendship and Tenants Harbor. And so we do all of our field work off of their boats. Okay. Engage them. Um, tell me a little bit about your PhD program. Yes. So I am getting my PhD in, in the ecology and environmental science. And we're looking at the human dimension of aquaculture in Maine. And that so that's in line with Dr. Teresa Johnson's work. Um, she's worked a lot with community resilience um, and adaptation in fishing communities. And we are looking particularly at the theory of innovation and using aquaculture as that innovation and then looking at individual adoption of innovation and what the barriers are to adoption and what the opportunities are and what the factors are that lead to an individual successfully implementing an aquaculture operation. And you were saying that your PhD research is looking at this question of innovation Say a little bit more about innovation, aquaculture as innovation. Sure. So, at least from doing stakeholder interviews last summer with over 50 people involved in the aquaculture industry, aquaculture is an emerging and evolving industry in Maine. It's been around, don't get me wrong, it's been around on the Damascata River since the 70s. But it's one of those fields that, you know, you're up against the natural world. And so you're constantly having to adapt and change your business and your practices to make it a a successful operation. Um, And so people are um, constantly changing and adapting their gear and refining those techniques and then finding their markets and figuring out how to sell their product. So there's innovation happening within the industry itself. But then also looking at our coast, we've been dominated by commercial fisheries, the wild capture fishery. And so um, those who have been trying to get into aquaculture besides the Damascada River and some other places where aquaculture is kind of growing and happening, um, 
it isn't something that you normally see on the waterfront. And so we're looking at those individuals who are starting to enter that industry as innovators, as kind of being the first ones, the leaders to test this out, to try this out when there might be a lot of barriers, you know, like our regulations aren't necessarily easy to navigate for anyone. They're, they can be challenging for a novice to navigate and they take time to learn. Um, and oftentimes our regulations are adapting year to year as new species emerge um, and those kinds of things. And then also, you know, navigating the process at the community level where aquaculture might not be readily accepted just yet. Things that came up as barriers are, you know, finding access points to the water, um, potential conflict with commercial fishermen, um, those kinds of things, access to capital to get an aquaculture operation off the ground because sometimes it takes a couple of years before you're able to harvest your first crop, so to speak. Um, and this was focused on shellfish and seaweed aquaculture. So, so it sounds like your work at the University of Maine, right? That's where you're doing your PhD. Yes. Is at the intersection between the biology and the technique of growing species and the interaction with coastal communities and fishermen and other users of the coast. So I would actually say that's where hurricanes work bridges with my PhD work. Okay. So my PhD work is um, definitely more of a social science approach. Um, so doing interviews with individuals and, you know, pre and post course surveys and mail surveys and those kinds of things and really understanding the human aspect. And then the great thing is, is that the interesting things that I hear in interviews, I can have the opportunity to test out on hurricane. And so, um, and, and delve into species biology and thinking about scallop aquaculture as potentially becoming a viable opportunity for people. Um, and that's our hope is that on Hurricane, we reach, recently received a small grant from um, CNET to start a research-intensive farm. So the idea that we could be a testing ground for other researchers involved in CNET, but even others who do aquaculture research, um, can use our site to test different gear, to test different species, to test multi-trophic aquaculture techniques. Um, and so we are at the very, very beginning stages of getting that going. Um, and because of what I've learned in my PhD work um, through stakeholder interviews, community interactions are really important and community acceptance is really critical to having a, a successful aquaculture operation. So I'm taking that into practice with what we're doing on Hurricane and hoping to really engage Vinyl Haven, which is, you know, Hurricane is part of the town of Vinyl Haven. So making sure that we, when we go to implement our farm, we have brought Vinyl Haven into that conversation and have made them feel a part of what we are trying to accomplish here on Hurricane so that they aren't... Um, adverse mm -hmm. to us trying to do this work here on Hurricane. Mm -hmm. So... How did you get into this work? What sparked the interest in sort of going down the road of exploring aquaculture, either biologically or sociologically? Well, you know, it's so I've done some work with commercial fisheries, um, and I feel as though having worked in that field, it's always sort of sad stories about fisheries mm -hmm. collapsing and, you know, 
very few sort of poster child of sustainable fisheries that actually last. Um, and then also caring very deeply about our coastal communities. Um, I really, you know, coming from Pennsylvania um, and growing up on the Jersey Shore where, you know, there's definitely recreation at the beach, but not that at least where I went, not that same sort of connection between people, their work, and their environment. And when I came to Maine for college, seeing that was really powerful to me. Um, and I really believe deeply in preserving that way of life. And I think aquaculture offers that potential. So it's it's a little bit more, it's definitely a different mindset. You know, I view fishermen as kind of hunters and aquaculturists as farmers. And so that is a very different sort of approach to how you do your daily work. But farming is a lot, can be more consistent. Um, when there's fluctuations in the wild stock, you could have, you know, a farm species be that backup to kind of keep things going. Um, and so I think there is real potential for, um, a diversification strategy for our commercial fishermen to become aquaculturists and to become farmers to some degree. Um, and just to, you know, preserve that way of life of working on the water, which Mm -hmm. I think is just, you know, what a lot of people think of when they think of Maine. Um, and I think it's an identity that, it would be sad to lose that in the future. Um, I'm, I'm Bailey, and I am the research assistant out here. I was the scallop intern last summer, and I'm out again for a second season, which is awesome. And I just graduated from Bowdoin College in Brunswick um, with majoring in earth and oceanographic science and environmental studies. And, and I'm really interested in in fisheries and sort of the intersection of science management and um, the social aspects with fishermen and the knowledge that they can provide and add to, to science. Um, and aquaculture especially has been a new interest that I'm excited to work on with these baby scallops this year. Um, What's exciting about aquaculture for you as a recent graduate? Yeah, I think it has a lot of potential in terms of the future of fishing and especially particularly shellfish and kelp aquaculture because they have no added inputs and they actually help clean the water and provide extra habitat Um, and it's a great way to diversify the incomes of fishermen many like kelp for example is a winter crop and it really doesn't take a lot um, more materials or equipment or skill than lobster fishing does so the fishermen can finish their lobster season and have something to do in the winter as well with their boats Um, and it's super healthy for people to eat and um, is definitely a growing market Um, so I think aquaculture done in a sustainable kind of community integrated way is pretty great supplement to the wild harvest um, to take some pressure off of that How did you end up here at Hurricane Island? I came out with my earth and oceanographic department my sophomore year at Bowdoin. On a field trip? On a field trip, yeah. They do a three-day field seminar every year, and they came out to Hurricane for the first time, and it's all the professors and any student who's ever taken a class through the department can come. I think they're going to do it again this September, which will be super exciting. And I got to come out here for three days and just hang out with the staff and go out on boats to take water samples and um, take soil cores and learn about the rocks. And it was just a cool 
really cool place. I think me and all my classmates walked away being like, wow, like we just had a really unique, awesome experience. Um, and then I saw this scallop internship. A friend showed it to me, and I had been kind of expressing frustration with research in general, feeling sometimes like it just doesn't come to fruition, like a lot of work is put in and then my professors are spending five years trying to get it written and published um, and especially in the environmental field it it just feels like we need to know what's coming out of science quicker and so that's why fisheries and this project in particular really interested me because it seemed like what we were finding was really going right back to help impact policy decisions within the fishery um, and it seemed like there was a quicker turnaround with the research and it was more involved by actually bringing in fishermen and fishermen's knowledge and not just sort of isolated um, working in a lab and to get to live out here was a really cool and the diving the diving anything that so you're a diver too yes okay yeah so we I'm a diver that I got certified in 10th grade and that was it for me I fell in love with the ocean and diving has been my favorite thing since so to have a job where you get to go and dive has been like the best thing ever yeah and you um, Can you expand a little bit more? You were saying that this project was exciting to you because you felt like it was informing fisheries policy. Can you say a little bit more about that piece? Yeah, um, so ideally this project is going to be able to tell us if this closed area is actually effective or not and um, if this is something that could be expanded or should continue um, and really helps fishermen get involved with the discussion. Um, Kate's really pushing to have this collaborative side to the project and bringing them into conversations about where should we go from here, um, what are your thoughts on how this is working, um, do you feel like the data we're collecting is um, accurate and meets is matching up with the things that you're seeing on the ground every day when you're out there fishing. Um, and so I think it's really awesome that what we're seeing every year can go back and be like, this is the number that we saw within the closure and outside the closure this year um, and it seems like it's doing well or it seems like there's not really a difference um, and yeah trying to have that directly inform the decisions that are made within this granted small smaller fishery in Maine um, than the lobster fishery or ground fish but I've always been interested in in sea life um, but never really had a whole lot of experience with sea life in Maine particularly, so most of it came from just sitting on the dock every day, sorting through these spat bags and putting together my little jar of cool things that I found, a lot of nudibranchs or sea anemones or weird worms, um, and bringing them back up to the lab, just kind of like an excited student uh -huh. would, and um, looking through the book and finding out what they were and reading a little bit more about them um, especially kind of forced me as well was good motivation because the students really integrate in with the projects and pretty much every program that comes through here comes and doesn't necessarily do a spat bag but sees us working on one and we'll keep a little jar of creatures out to show them under the microscope and so uh, to answer, be able to answer questions that kids had about all these creatures um, I think Probably by the end of last summer, between the diving and the spat bags, I had seen almost everything in that identification book, um, which was really, really cool, or things that had floated up on the dock. Um, so yeah, to just, wow. and I really, that was sort of a, a like teaching moment for myself that d things don't always have to be learned 
through a book in the classroom that it was really I could self-teach myself a lot of the things that you might learn in a marine biology class just by being excited that it was in front of me and in my hands and um, seeing what that could maybe tell me about even though we're interested in the scallops and these fat bags but why do some bags have a ton of nudibranchs in them why are some like this bag has a bunch of cohogs whereas that line didn't really seem to um, things like that If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, here on WERU 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Today, we're talking with college and graduate students doing research on the Maine coast. This show has been pre-recorded at a variety of research sites, and we are not taking calls at this time. Like Caitlin Cleaver and Bailey Moritz, our next student, Tyler Quiring, is also looking at fisheries issues on the coast, but from a completely different perspective. Tyler recently completed his Master's in Communications at the University of Maine as part of the New England Sustainability Consortium. He is now a research associate at the Mitchell Center for Sustainability Solutions and is about to enter a PhD program at UMaine working with Dr. Bridie McGreevy. As a communications person, Tyler's work looks at improving the public's understanding of clamming by using innovative storytelling techniques to illustrate the very personal experience of clamors on the mudflats. Tyler spends a lot of time on the flats, where he equips clamors with a camera and ear mics. Today, Tyler and I are at Hadley Point on Mount Desert Island in the upper reaches of Frenchman Bay, and it's low tide. I asked Tyler to explain why he chose here as a meeting place for us today. Well, uh, we're at Hadley Point today, and uh, the reason that we're here is because in the past I've come here to use communication as a way of engaging um, not only with the public, but also with um, stakeholders and also with the people that were most interested in helping with this research. Um, So in the past... uh, We've come, like myself and my uh, my advisor, Bridie McGreevy, um, have come to Hadley Point to um, meet up with clam harvesters because we're, we're doing this uh, interesting and innovative project called Clam Cam, where we have been uh, meeting up with clam diggers and putting, putting a GoPro camera on their chest using this chest-mounted harness, putting um, microphones in their ears. Uh, and so basically what this lets us do is kind of get in, in a sense, a clamor's eye view and a clamor's ear <laughs> um, perspective on what clamming is like, because um, <clears throat> softshell clams uh, account for uh, a large um, amount of uh, its main uh, second biggest shell fishery, or its main second biggest fishery, um, and we found that oftentimes the the stories of the people who are who are enabling clams to get from the sea to people's plates maybe aren't the stories that are foregrounded. So we wanted to see what we could do by um, meeting up with with climbers themselves and letting them show us through their actions the kind of work they do that enables this this industry. Um, So we've done that a couple times here at Hadley Point in the past. You shared with me a link to a website that you've Mm -hmm. created where you had a clip of Mm -hmm. one of the clam cams. Is that what you're calling it? And it was pretty cool. Mm. It was a very... I felt like I was the clamor. Mm-hmm. So the purpose mm-hmm. of the clam cams is to enable 
others, non-clammers, to understand more mm -hmm. about clamming? Well, it has a couple purposes. One is to um, is to share more broadly what clamming looks like. So, um, you know, even people in the state who may not know what exactly, you know, is it like to dig clams, um, they'll, be, they'll be able to come and get a sense of that. But also, um, we're finding it really productive in terms of research, in terms of um, communication uh, isn't necessarily only about humans talking to each other. It's also about the connections we see, especially in ecology, the connections we see between people uh, in the work they do um, and the lives they lead, the connections between them and other organisms and other um, environmental participants. So that's one thing that the study is really um, providing a lot of fine-scale um, uh, information about. We're, we're able to learn a lot at a really, um, in a really fine scale about how these practices um, constitute sustainability. Through the research, one of the things that we're finding is that um, clam digging can take many different forms. So one of the challenges for sustainability is figuring out how, um, for example, in you know Maine's uh, regulation of the shellfish industry and the management, how can, um, for example, the Department of Marine Resources provide you know the services that they need to to um, such a diverse array of towns and one thing that the research that we're doing through clam cam is showing us is that there's a lot of different ways of even digging the clams let alone managing those clams which we've been also seeing um, through our ethnography where we've been participating in um, you know in studying the management in these local communities there's a lot of variability in how people dig clams uh, in terms of what kind of mud they want to dig in is one of the big ones. Some people prefer to do what they call pulling or hand picking, where they walk out on these soft sheets of mud um, that are that are out in like the estuaries uh, or out in the bay, and and they'll walk along the surface of the mud, kind of gliding along, and they'll reach in and they'll pull um, clams out by hand. By hand. Which we've been learning through um, actually reviewing the footage with with diggers is a is a very complex and um, and robust kind of engagement with the environment because they have to pay attention to. The, what the holes that the clams uh, leave as they siphon the water, what the holes uh, tell them about the clam's location in the mud. Um, because if you reach and you try to grab a clam without holding it in the right way, you'll slice your hand open. Um, so that's one example of kind of a really interesting um, fine-scale um, interaction between the human and the clam uh, that uh, speaks to the expertise of diggers that they have. Tyler worked with one clammer recently, using the clam cam to document how he pulls clams with his hand rather than a hoe or a rake. Tyler explains as the clammer pulls. Very different tempo, very different um, substrate. There's really soupy mud, no rocks. And the digger is just, just striding from one hole to another, bending over every few seconds, picking up a clam. This is the digger that we met with later on to um, watch the video with. He told us that you have to be really careful how you put your hand in the mud so you don't um, cut your hand on the edge of a clam. So one of the things you can see in this video is him turning his hand different ways depending on the shape of the clam hole because uh, he knows the orientation of a clam in the mud before he even reaches in. One of the other interesting things that 
he told me when I asked him afterward, and we, we have a set of questions that we ask diggers after we go out with them. We ask them, um, what do you think of, you know, using the camera like this? We also, an important one we ask them is, did the camera change the way you dig at all? You know, can you tell if it changed the way you dug? He said no, but he said that one thing that we should look out for is that people, if they were viewing online, might be confused by sometime, sometimes he puts his hand in and comes out without a clam. What he told us is that he can tell by putting his hand in that the, the clam's too small. It's below the legal limit. And so he doesn't even bother ret- bother retrieving it. And he's that articulate with his hand. He just had to barely brush the clam with his fingers to know it was too small to take. And then others are yeah. digging with a rake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a rake or a hoe um, is what they typically call it. And uh, it's a you know, like wood-handled um, rake uh, with, with you know tines that can vary in thickness and, and, and length themselves. Um, we've heard from a lot of diggers that we've actually seen as well that oftentimes, uh, even after just one season, the wood will either break or <laughs> rot through. Um, and so they'll they'll weld a piece of metal, a piece of metal pipe on and <laughs> modify their hose in that way. Um, so yeah, a lot of different ways uh, that people dig and a lot of different um, gear that they bring out with them too. Uh, they also bring out hods or rollers, as they call them, either um, made of wood uh, or wire, which is a container <laughs> for, for holding clams after you find them. And um, and then one of the things that the Clam Cam Project is really letting us get a look at and a sense of is just, and, and this is something we're still learning about, is is tr- trying to understand the range of um, movement types and the range of digging methods. Um, some people scratch at the surface of the mud. Some people dig uh, very deep, trying to get uh, a maximum number of clams in each in each turn of the mud. Um, it, a lot of it depends on personal preference. A lot of it is also driven by the conditions at the at the place as well. One of the, I think, the most fascinating things that we've discovered is just how much expertise goes into getting clams out of the mud <laughs> and then eventually onto people's plates. And that's one of the things we really want to show uh, through the online archive as well that we'll be sharing. That archive is not up online yet because Tyler and his colleagues are still in the thick of the project. But if you want a sneak preview of what one of the clam cam videos might look like, you can go to www.nest.com nest.main.edu and click on the shellfish tab. This will take you to Tyler's storytelling page where you can find the special audio video production of a clamor in action. As it turns out, Tyler explains that these videos may prove pretty important in preserving Maine's clamming heritage. One of the things that we've been hearing in the interviews we've been doing um, that supports what we're seeing in the um, in the clam cam project as well is that there may be um, challenges to clam digging as a lineage. So many of the diggers that we speak to talk about how they got into digging, um, you know, by going along with their parents, um, you know, digging as a, you know a, a family family story in a way that they're participating in but a lot of them express concern that they don't think future generations or current you know even up up and coming generations are particularly interested in clam digging so in the event that that you know turns out to continue the clam cam project may end up serving as an archive of a you know of an art and a practice that um we may see less and less of in the future 
the ultimate goal is helping contribute to the sustainability of the region and helping um, helping you know the uh, the public understand clam digging more will help them you know be able to support you know the best management possible in their area but um, you know we fully expect that towns uh, you know will be able to use this as a resource as well to think about um, the types of practices maybe that we want to protect for the future as well. Our next student, Emma Fox, is also doing master's level research at the University of Maine with the New England Sustainability Consortium. She works with doctors Carolyn Noblet and Kathleen Bell and fellow master's student Abigail Kaminsky in the School for Economics. But Emma's focus is not fisheries, it's water quality. Emma is specifically looking at attitudes about coastal water quality and perceptions that impact Maine and New Hampshire coastal residents' willingness to pay for water quality improvement programs. The work is intended to help managers and municipalities work towards improving coastal water quality, but Emma also has some great advice for students just getting started and the important role that students play in coastal decision-making. Let's hear from Emma. My name is Emma Fox. I'm a master's student with the University of Maine School of Economics in the Ecology and Environmental Science program, and I'm working on the New England Sustainability Consortium Safe Beaches and Shellfish Project. So the New England Sustainability Consortium is a it's a group of researchers and institutions. It's a big collaborative project um, looking at uh, water quality in Maine and New Hampshire and um, trying to improve the science behind decision-making around coastal issues. I'm part of the social science team, which um, looks at the human dimensions, water quality, so um, looking at what kind of human behaviors might negatively impact water quality, what kind of values and perceptions people hold about water quality and the contributors to poor water quality. So we did uh, two survey efforts with um, coastal Maine and New Hampshire residents. One was um, an online survey effort. The other was in mail version. So people got a booklet in the mail and they had to fill it out and send it back to us. So the research that, um, that I've helped out with has has been based on the results from those surveys. So as a part of that work, my research focuses on looking at the attitudes people have about coastal water quality and how those attitudes impact their support of coastal water quality programs. We asked in the survey would you be willing to support a coastal water quality improvement program if it was going to cost your household an additional, you know, dollar amount per month um, as a part of your sewer water septic bill? And we're using that yes-no response um, as the dependent variable in our model and seeing what kind of attitudes people have along with other um, socio-demographic variables like age and income and education, gender, um, that might impact their support for coastal water quality. And we're really finding that um, attitudes about personal responsibility. So me as a coastal resident, I have an impact either positive or negative on coastal water quality. My behaviors can change coastal water quality, um, as well as the attitudes that 
polluted runoff is really a driver of poor water quality. So pollution broadly, whether that includes um, leaky or failing septic systems, as well as runoff from roads and other impervious surfaces. So if they think that they as an individual have an impact on coastal water quality, they feel very strongly about that, they're more likely to be supportive of a coastal water quality improvement program that's going to, you know, that they're going to pay a certain amount per month to help support. So we're hoping that this work can help coastal managers think about the drivers of people's behavior and that knowing what um, is important to people in terms of support for this kind of water quality improvement program, that that might help coastal managers think about um, targeted messaging to different groups. So if polluted runoff is something that folks associate with poor water quality, then telling people more about what are the drivers of polluted runoff and like septic leaking or failing septic systems or if personal responsibility is the real driver for support for a program like a water quality improvement program, then telling people about the little things that they can do to help support clean water on the coast. This whole project, we've been working very closely with um, the Department of Marine Resources and the Maine Healthy Beaches Program, as well as the Coastal Program, Maine's Coastal Program. And those programs have given us feedback all along. So in the construction of the survey instrument, and then later in looking at um, providing feedback for how we deliver results, presenting the research and more to more general audiences is part of it. So uh, the recent Maine Sustainability and Water Conference, we had a lot of New England Sustainability Consortium researchers presenting their research um, Presenting to general audiences, we've also um, made our data available through the Data Discovery Center at the University of New Hampshire. The Data Discovery Center is kind of is the the portal we use to make that data available. Emma talked about how her experiences working on the coast of Maine before going to graduate school had an impact on her life goals. I asked what she would recommend to someone perhaps a bit younger than herself to get started in this kind of work. I, I've been asked a couple times now to present um, kind of about my research and uh, been asked for advice to give to young people. And I always say, do AmeriCorps. <laughs> uh-huh. It was personally the most valuable experience I could have had coming out of college and it helped me it changed my career path entirely um it helped me think about what was really important to me um in terms of values but also like how I was going to make an impact in the world just best thing that could have happened to me so I I tell everybody join AmeriCorps (laughs) try it out yeah And now, as Emma wraps up her master's degree, she's already looking at a PhD at the University of Maine. So I asked her why she thought that it was important for students to be engaged in these kinds of research projects that tackle important public decision-making processes. Um, Critical. It's a critical role that students play. Um, I think being so just beginning their careers in whatever field of their choosing, students offer different 
kind of fresh perspective on all kinds of coastal work, as well as they are in a position to be able to learn a lot. Um, I'm working with people who have been in those fields for a long time and to be able to kind of set down roots in this area. I think it's important to have people just starting out in their careers and continue to stay um, working on the coast and a whole host of coastal issues because then maybe they'll stick around, I think. And make a difference. Yeah. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, here on WERU 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Today, we're talking with college and graduate students doing research on the Maine coast. This show has been pre-recorded at a variety of research sites, and we are not taking calls at this time. Finally, in our last spot, we leave water quality issues and the mainland to hear from a group of students doing entirely different research on the coast of Maine on an island much farther out to sea. Great Duck Island, about a 90-minute boat ride from downtown Bar Harbor, is one of College of the Atlantic's island research stations, where students participate in multi-year research projects that explore changes in seabird populations and island ecology. This summer, undergraduate students from College of the Atlantic and a graduate student from the University of New Brunswick in Canada are collaborating on various aspects of seabird research. Several are looking at nesting habits of guillemots and leeches storm petrels. One student is investigating the island's numerous ant populations, and all of them contribute to long-term wildlife censuses on the island. But our story today focuses on their research on herring gulls. Scientists report that herring gull populations on the coast of Maine, and indeed along the entire North Atlantic all the way to Europe, are plummeting at an alarming rate, and they don't really know why or what the decline portends for other marine species. I went out to Great Duck Island to hear from these young researchers about how they got here and why we should care about herring gull decline. Let's start with Kate Schlepper, the grad student at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. Sure. My name is Kate Schlepper. I am an alum of College of the Atlantic, and I'm currently a graduate student at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. Um, I've been studying seabirds for the past uh, five or six years. I did a few summers here out on Great Duck, and then I've been up in the Bay of Fundy on a few islands studying uh, herring gulls and puffins and razorbills the last few years, and now I'm back on the island on Great Duck. And why are you back on Great Duck? Um, Well, I love this place, first of all. Um, I just think it's beautiful, and I feel very connected to this particular island. It's where I started field research. Um, But more practically, it's sort of an expansion of the graduate work I'm doing. So in uh, the Bay of Fundy, we were putting GPS tags on herring gulls to look at diet and foraging behaviors. And this summer on Great Duck and on Mount Desert Rock, the college's other um, island research station, we were putting the same type of tags out on herring gulls to try to compare movement and compare diet over the latitude. So you've got some um, GPS that devices? Yep. So they're they're little. We they look like backpacks. They're small. They weigh about. 17 grams and there are two loops that hook around the legs so it sits right underneath the wings on the gulls. Oh. 
And so you're doing it off of Mount Desert Rock, off of Great Duck Island, and then off of places in the Bay of Fundy. Bay of Fundy, all the way up to Newfoundland. So um, we've got quite a range. And what I think is really fascinating is the type of food available to gulls varies a little bit because that's such a wide geographic range. So I am interested to see if foraging habits, if their behavior um, is similar in all of these places, even if they're going after different types of prey. And what's, why are you paying attention to gulls? We're a little bit concerned about gulls in the North Atlantic. So um, the the United States uh, Fish and Wildlife Service and the Canadian counterpart, um, the Canadian Wildlife Service, have done systematic surveys of gulls on the coast uh, for the past three or four decades. Uh, And those census records show a decline somewhere between 40 and 70 percent um, in our in our part of the world, so co- coastal North America. Um, and a few few years ago, uh, at a bird conference over in Germany, we talked to a lot of Europeans studying gulls as well, and they're seeing again very significant declines in their herring gull population to the point that they're thinking about red listing this bird as a threatened species. The herring gull, the one that we consider sort of the ubiquitous gull. Yeah, and so everybody says they're so common, um, and this is this is true, they're still a fairly common seabird, um, but one thing I, I like to keep in mind when I talk to people is that gulls te- in, in this day are tending to con- congregate near human centers too. So a lot of the offshore colonies have really um, fallen off and we've lost a lot of birds but we're still seeing a lot of birds around fishing boats or around landfills um, those those human food sources where we, where we would be likely to encounter our, our gulls so the gulls that so the, the overall population is declining fairly precipitously it sounds like yeah but they the ones that remain congregate around humans so we're not noticing the decline yes yes okay if the gull population is declining. Do you think that that can inform us about the larger health of the Gulf of Maine ecosystem? I think so. Um, there's a lot of research going on right now that talks about seabirds as indicator species. And whereas gulls aren't particularly sensitive um, to certain types of food, and by that I mean they're, they are a generalist species, they're good at eating everything. They're good at even eating garbage, or they're good hunting for other seabirds, or they're good eating berries. Um, the fact that we're seeing shifts in diet, I think, is telling. And also the fact that we have this very, what was a very common opportunistic species, that the fact that we're record, recording declines in that species is concerning to me as a marine biologist. It tells me that um, there, there likely are very big shifts happening in the oceans, that they're eating different types of prey than what they were eating just 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. I asked Kate how she thought that this new tagging project around the whole region might help answer some critical questions about gull behavior and the potential reasons behind the decline. What I think is exciting about the tagging project is that We've been able to say for a very long time, gulls eat bait, or gulls eat garbage, or gulls eat berries. So we've been able to list what gulls as a species do, but the tags, what's new about the tags is that 
you can talk about goals on, at an individual level. So we can say this particular goal A goes to the landfill on a daily basis and this goal B goes fishing every day. And then you can look at the next nest success and say, well, A raises healthier chicks than B does or B raises more chicks than A does. So the hope would be to start answering some of the questions you asked before about um, what is causing declines in the gall population because you're able to tie food choice or foraging behavior to individual fitness. So how well is that individual bird able to raise chicks? And I'm, we're hoping it will give us a clue as to what sources of food are really healthy for gulls and which sources of food don't, don't quite make ends meet. While Kate is busy looking at the big picture of what the gulls are eating throughout the Gulf of Maine and even further north, Carolyn Brown, one of the undergraduates working on Great Duck Island this summer, who is from Mount Desert Island herself, is looking specifically at what the gulls here on Great Duck are eating right now. Let's hear from Carolyn. So my project is focusing on a herring gull diet. So one task I am in charge of is doing a daily chick check. And so um, part of what I'm doing when I go out into the colony is to see what the chicks are eating. So a somewhat gross part that some people might find of my project is I get thrown up on by chicks. And out of curiosity's sake, I see what they have been eating so I can see what the parents are feeding them. And most of the time so far, it has been primarily fish. Though I've gotten some crustaceans like crab or even shrimp out regurgitations, which lets me know that they're eating local food sources that they should normally be eating instead of garbage. Over the past several decades, um, the um, food resources for gulls in Maine have changed dramatically. So if you looked back along the coast of Maine, even mid-coast up to Downies, there was a lot more landfills than there currently are now. And in the past several decades, they've all began to close down. And the question is, when or if the lobstering industry crashes, what are the birds going to feed on now? Because if you look out on a day like today when there are a lot of lobster boats, you can see 20, 30 birds flying around them and a lot of them are coming from our island if the boats are nearby and they're coming back and feeding their chicks that. So the question is, if that industry goes, what are they going to turn to next for available food resources? As I spoke with Carolyn about how a potential change in the lobster industry might impact herring gall food sources, since galls are such big fans of discarded lobster bait, another student, Mikey Cornish, was busy flying a drone outside of the lightkeeper's house and over the bird colonies. Turns out Mikey wasn't just taking cool photos to post on the research station's Facebook page. He was busy developing a new methodology to collect highly detailed information about nesting sites using this drone technology. Mikey explained that there are limitations with traditional methods of censusing bird nests. Aerial flights and ground surveys are both extremely expensive and laborious. So let's hear from Mikey about what he is proposing as an alternative. So when we were thinking about drones, we were thinking about, well, is it possible to count gull nests with a drone? So what we did is we, we came up with this plan that maybe it would work just by photographing and then making a map. So what I did is I came out here and I found an, an, uh, a software that flies the drone automatically in a grid pattern over the colony. 
So you're essentially taking a drone, which I used a really commercially available one. You could buy at any, any Apple store or somewhere like that. Taking an application you could download on the iOS store that will t- take the drone and physically map an, a, a specific area. So it's a super accessible thing to do. And so what I will do with that is then you load that into a software that can mosaic that into an ortho map, which is essentially when you're taking overlapping photos and they're overlapped so many times that the resolution is like two centimeters per pixel. So that's outrageous, outrageous resolution at that point. So then all you'd have to do is go to a location, fly the drone, bring back that information put that onto the software and then count the gulls and i i think for the south end it it took me like two to three hours something like that on 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 a gis program so in at going forward if you were able to get a certain amount of institutions to be to to know how to do this practice which is why i would like to write a paper about it and show my methods that you could essentially cut, cut up maine into chunks like the fisheries do like the, um, like the DMR does, and you have certain institutions that map certain areas, you could, you could ultimately get counts every year, which would be massively, massively useful in terms of making that data of increase and decrease in Maine much more, much more useful. And then you would be able to isolate it to specific islands where, okay, this, this, colony's, this colony's declining this year, you know, and then you could get on the ground and say, why? So Mikey, a rising college sophomore, is busy developing a new method to census wildlife, something that could benefit all kinds of field research, let alone the herring gulls we looked at today. At the same time, Kate is exploring how the diverse foraging behaviors of herring gulls over a huge geographic region, from Maine to Newfoundland, can illuminate wider changes in the region's ecological health. And Carolyn is helping fill out the picture locally by identifying the actual content of gull chick diet here on Great Duck Island. You get the feeling, spending time in the field with all these talented young researchers, that the work done by a very passionate group of college and graduate students can really change the way we make decisions about the Gulf of Maine and its future. Well, we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about college and graduate students on the coast of Maine. Thanks so much to all of our guests for sharing your stories. I wanted to remind listeners that this is the second in a three-part series. In July, we talked with kids and adults from summer marine ecology programs, and in September, we'll talk with the next generation of leaders in Maine's fishing industry. You can learn more about the series and our guests at seagrant.umaine.edu slash coastalconversations. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.